Hello, everyone, and welcome to the October 23rd edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skern, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A WCAB panel has now approved the use of a discovery device known as an interrogatory in the panel decision of Nady versus Pleasant Valley State Prison. Margaret Nady submitted a workers' compensation form DWC-1 to her employer, Pleasant Valley State Prison, in 2015, claiming injury to her right shoulder. She later filed an application claiming she suffered a specific injury to her shoulders and lower extremities in November 2014 while employed as a nurse. A letter was sent to her that requested disclosure of all permanent disabilities or physical impairments that existed prior to the injury. The request was made pursuant to Labor Code Section 4663D, which states that an employee who claims an industrial injury shall, upon request, disclose all previous permanent disabilities or physical impairments. Nady and her attorney failed to respond. So the employer filed a motion to compel applicant to respond to the letters it had sent. The work comp judge issued a ruling denying the motion to compel, and the defendant filed a petition for removal. A panel reversed and remanded the issue in the case of Nady versus Pleasant Valley State Prison. The report of the work comp judge in opposition to removal appeared to suggest that the defendant should be required to depose applicant if the defendant wishes to obtain information about applicant's prior disabilities. The WCAB found no support for this contention in the language of the statute, which states clearly and unequivocally that applicant shall disclose such information upon request. The panel went on to note that if the legislature intended such information to be only discoverable at a deposition, it would not have worded the statute in the manner that it did. The panel said it saw little sense in mandating that such a basic disclosure be accomplished by way of the costly and time-consuming method of taking a deposition. It decided to return the matter to the trial level, for further proceedings since the petition to compel disclosure did not include a time frame for response or mandate any particular method of response. If the parties cannot agree on how to provide the information, they may seek a hearing before the work comp judge who can then determine the details of how applicant shall make their required Labor Code Section 4663 disclosures. Four Orange County Sheriff's deputies have filed workers' compensation claims for physical and psychological injuries they say they suffered when they attended a country music festival in Las Vegas, where a gunman killed 58 people. Deputies were at the Route 91 Harvest Festival and say they quickly assumed life-saving roles, protecting the perimeter of the area with a shotgun in one case and administering medical care in other instances. Though the deputies were in Las Vegas on their personal time, their workers' compensation claim will make the case that they acted as on-duty law enforcement officers when they sprang into action to help others. 
The deputies filed their claims only a few days after the October 1 shooting, in which 64-year-old retiree Stephen Paddock fired into the festival crowd, killing 58 people and wounding more than 500. The Orange County Board of Supervisors met in closed session to discuss the claims. The president of the Association of Orange County Deputy Sheriffs said that he traveled to Las Vegas the day after the shooting and encouraged his deputies who had helped others the night before to file claims. He also said that the sheriff's department has an expectation that its deputy sheriffs, that when they are faced with circumstances where the public is in grave danger, they should take action. He added that the county has to be very cautious in these cases. If they deny the claims, then the message that they're sending to their peace officers is not to take action when it is certainly warranted. Deputy Joe Owen sustained non-life-threatening injuries after he was shot in the abdomen and thigh. Deputy Melanie Cooper administered CPR on six of seven people, later saying the event was the most traumatic thing she had ever been through. Deputies Mark Siemens and Brandon Mundy helped people escape and applied medical care to others. And Deputy Garrett Eggert, using a shotgun given to him by local law enforcement, helped to protect the perimeter. A county supervisor said he asked the board to consider the claims in closed session after he learned the county likely would have rejected them administratively. He said that under a strict interpretation of California law, workers' compensation might only extend to law enforcement officers responding to an emergency within the state. But he said he did not want the claims to be rejected summarily because he did not want to dissuade deputies from helping in emergencies in the future. And now our crime report. The Department of Justice announced that federal grand juries in Mississippi and North Dakota indicted two Chinese nationals and their North American traffickers and distributors for distributing large quantities of fentanyl and fentanyl analogs and other opiate substances in the United States. The Chinese nationals are the first manufacturers and distributors of fentanyl and other opiate substances to be designated as Consolidated Priority Organization Targets, CPOTs. CPOT designations are those who have command and control elements of the most prolific international drug trafficking and money laundering organizations. 40-year-old Xibing Yan of China was indicted on two counts of conspiracy to manufacture and distribute multiple controlled substances including fentanyl and fentanyl analogs and seven counts of manufacturing and distributing the drugs in specific instances. Yan allegedly operated websites selling acetylfentanyl and other deadly fentanyl analogs directly to U.S. customers in multiple cities across the country. Yan also operated at least two chemical plants in China that were capable of producing ton quantities of fentanyl and fentanyl analogs. Yan monitored legislation and law enforcement activities in the United States and China, modifying the chemical structure of the fentanyl analogs he produced to evade prosecution in the United States. Over the course of the investigation, federal agents identified more than 100 distributors of synthetic 
opioids involved with Yanzhou manufacturing and distribution networks. Federal investigators of the distributors are ongoing in 10 judicial districts. Also, 38-year-old Jian Yang of China, five Canadian citizens, two residents of Florida, and a resident of New Jersey were indicted for conspiracy to distribute fentanyl and its analogs in the United States. Yang allegedly ran an organization that manufactured fentanyl in at least four known labs in China and advertised and sold fentanyl to U.S. customers over the Internet. 26-year-old Elizabeth Tan and 33-year-old Anthony Gomez of both Davie, Florida, were arrested. And on October 12, 48-year-old Darius Garrity of Ramsey, New York, or Ramsey, New Jersey, was also arrested. Tan, Gomes, and Giardi are charged with drug trafficking conspiracy in the Zhang indictment. The investigation revealed a new and disturbing facet of the opioid crisis in America. Fentanyl and its analogs are coming into the United States in numerous ways, including highly pure shipments of fentanyl from factories in China directly to U.S. customers who purchase it on the Internet. Yang and Yan are the first Chinese nationals designated as consolidated priority organization targets. CPOTs are among the most significant drug trafficking threats in the world. 21 individuals in total have been indicted on federal drug charges in both North Dakota and Oregon as part of the investigation. A one-time sales representative for Aflac was sentenced to 10 years in federal prison after being convicted of federal fraud charges. 61-year-old Patricia Diane Smith Sledge of Redlands was sentenced for uh, her scheme that used bogus disability claims to bilk the insurance company out of more than $4 million. In addition to the prison term, Sledge is ordered to pay over $4.1 million in restitution. Sledge was found guilty of six counts of mail fraud as well as two counts of witness tampering following a two-week jury trial late last year. The fraud scheme involved fictitious employers and bogus employees who falsely claimed to have suffered injuries that prevented them from working. The evidence presented at trial showed that Sledge sold AFLAC disability insurance policies to bogus companies and people who supposedly worked for those companies. Sledge then orchestrated the filing of fraudulently dis fraudulent disability claims and directed the purported employees to doctors that would sign off on the fake claims. Sledge made money from both the commissions related to the sale of the fraudulent policies and from kickbacks she received from the supposedly injured employees. Sledge exploited her knowledge of Aflac's internal policies to underwriting procedures to further her scheme. Sledge was also found guilty of witness tampering for encouraging potential witnesses to lie to federal investigators and discourage them from cooperating in the investigation. One of these crimes was committed while she was on bond in the case. Three others have been prosecuted for acting as fake employers and fake employees in this scheme. And in regulatory news, the California Workers' Compensation Institute released a report on a list of bills that will affect the workers' compensation system next year. 
The bills were recently signed into law at the end of the legislative session by Governor Jerry Brown. AB 40 enables medical providers to use third-party software to access information about a patient's prescription drug history from the state's prescription drug monitoring program known as Cures. Currently, providers can only access the information through the Cures website. But AB 40 will simplify the process by allowing them to link their systems directly to Cures eliminating the need to log onto the website and perform a manual search. The Advocacy Services for Workers Injured by Terrorist Acts requires employers to provide immediately available advocacy services for workers injured by acts of domestic violence. Advocates such as nurse case managers will be responsible for helping these injured workers obtain medical treatment and helping their medical providers obtain treatment authorizations and payments. The bill is introduced in response to medical treatment issues that arose on claims filed by workers following the December 2015 terrorist attack at the Inland Regional, Regional Center in San Bernardino. Another law, AB 1422, extends the automatic stay on liens filed by medical providers charged with criminal fraud so that it runs from the time the criminal charges are filed all the way through the suspension hearing. The bill closes a loophole in existing law that gave providers an opportunity to pursue liens for payment between the time they were convicted of fraud and the point at which they were suspended. AB 1422 further clarifies that these rules also apply to entities controlled by individuals charged with criminal fraud. Another law, SB 17, requires pharmaceutical companies to notify health insurers and government health plans at least 60 days before scheduled prescription drug price hikes that would exceed 16% over a two-year period and to explain the reasons behind those increases. Another law, SB 54, requires the state attorney general to draft model policies for state agencies, including the Department of Workers' Compensation, limiting assistance with immigration enforcement to the full extent possible consistent with federal and state law. The model policies are to cover state buildings, including those used by the DIR, the DWC, and the WCAB. And SB 189 allows corporate officers and directors who own at least 10% of a business to opt out of workers' comp coverage for themselves if they sign a waiver stating that they are covered by a health insurance plan. The 10% threshold is a reduction from the 15% threshold established in 2016. This bill also includes a conclusive presumption that a person who executes a waiver is not covered by workers' compensation. And SB 272 enables the State Compensation Insurance Fund Board to appoint a Chief Underwriter, Chief Information Security Officer, Senior Vice President of Insurance Services, Executive Vice President of Corporate Claims, Executive Vice President of Strategic Planning, and a Pricing Actuary. Each of these are executive positions exempt from civil service protections. And SB 306 expands the Labor Commissioner's ability to investigate complaints by employees that their employer retaliated or discriminated against them in response to protected conduct, which may include filing or testifying on behalf of a co-worker in a workers' compensation claim. 
and SB 306 allows a commissioner to initiate investigations of such claims without having to go to court to obtain an enforcement order and to obtain an award for attorney fees and costs when it successfully prosecutes a retaliation claim through the courts. And SB 430 enables SIGA, upon the approval of the insurance commissioner, to purchase reinsurance for its workers' compensation fund from any reinsurer licensed in California. This removes the current restriction that only allowed SIGA to purchase reinsurance from its member companies, even though most reinsurers in the state are not SIGA members. And finally, SB 489 extends the deadline for emergency room physicians to submit their bills to workers' compensation claims administrators from 30 days to 180 days for treatments provided under SB 1160's pass-through provisions for certain treatment provided during the first 30 days following injury. According to an investigative report aired by 60 Minutes and the concurrent story published the same day by the Washington Post, Congress effectively stripped the DEA of its potent weapon against large drug companies suspected of spilling prescription narcotics onto the nation's streets in 2016. The new law was passed by Congress without any objection and signed by President Obama at the height of the deadliest drug epidemic in U.S. history. The law was the crowning achievement of a multifaceted campaign by the drug industry to weaken aggressive DEA enforcement efforts against drug distribution companies that were supplying corrupt doctors and pharmacists who have peddled narcotics to the black market. The industry worked behind the scenes with lobbyists and key members of Congress pouring more than a million dollars into their election campaigns. The chief advocate of the law that hobbled the DEA was Tom Marino, a Pennsylvania Republican, who was President Trump's nominee to become the nation's next drug czar. Marino spent years trying to move the law through Congress. It passed after Senator Orrin Hatch negotiated a final version with the DEA. Marino's staff called the U.S. Capitol Police when the Post and 60 Minutes tried to interview the congressman at his office on September 12. In the past, the congressman has said the DEA was too aggressive and needed to work more collaboratively with drug companies. For years, some drug distributors were fined for repeatedly ignoring warnings from the DEA to shut down suspicious sales of hundreds of millions of pills while they racked up billions of dollars in sales. The new law passed last year makes it virtually impossible for the DEA to free suspicious narcotic shipments from the companies. Political action committees representing the industry contributed at least $1.5 million to the 23 lawmakers who sponsored or co-sponsored four versions of the bill, including nearly $100,000 to Marino and $177,000 to Hatch. Overall, the drug industry spent $106 million lobbying Congress on the bill and other legislation between 2014 and 2016. Joseph Ranazzisi, who ran the DEA's division responsible for regulating the drug industry and led a decade-long campaign of aggressive enforcement until he was forced out of the agency in 2015. He was the whistleblower in the 60 Minutes news story and claimed the drug industry 
The drug manufacturers, wholesaler distributors, and chain drugstores have an influence over Congress that has never been seen before. Besides the sponsors and co-sponsors of the bill, few lawmakers knew the true impact the law would have. It sailed through Congress and was passed by unanimous consent, a parliamentary procedure reserved for bills considered to be non-controversial. According to interviews with former senior administration officials, the White House was equally unaware of the bill's import when President Barack Obama signed it into law. Top officials at the White House and the Justice Department have declined to discuss how the bill came to pass. Loretta Lynch, who was Attorney General at the time, declined a recent interview request. President Obama also declined to discuss the law. A senior DEA official said the agency fought the bill for years in the face of growing pressure from key members of Congress and industry lobbyists. But the DEA lost the battle and eventually was forced to accept a deal it did not want. The DEA and Justice Department have denied or delayed more than a dozen requests filed by the Post and 60 Minutes under the Freedom of Information Act for public records that might shed additional light on the matter. Some of those requests have been pending for nearly 18 months. The Post is now suing the Justice Department in federal court for some of those records. The successful effort of the opiate drug industry was also related to inside information on the DEA strategies obtained by the drug industry as a result of the revolving door of former DEA attorneys and investigators hired by the drug industry. At least 46 investigators, attorneys, and supervisors from the DEA, including 32 directly from the division that regulates the drug industry, have been hired by the pharmaceutical industry since the scrutiny on distributors began. Among them, Lyndon Barber, former associate chief counsel at the DEA, who is now a senior vice president at Cardinal Health, one of the nation's top drug distributors. Mike Gill, chief of staff for the former acting DEA administrator, was hired by one of the county's largest healthcare law firms. And most recently, Jason Hadges, a senior DEA attorney overseeing enforcement, joined the pharmaceutical division of a high-powered Washington, D.C. law firm. Soon after the report aired on 60 Minutes, Senator Clara McCaskill announced she will push to repeal the 2016 law. The ranking member on the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee said her legislation is being introduced in response to the joint Washington Post and 60 Minutes investigation. And the fallout from the 60 Minutes revelations have already started. Pennsylvania Republican Representative Tom Marino, who is responsible for the law to weaken the DEA enforcement efforts, has withdrawn his name from consideration to be the nation's next drug czar. A replacement candidate will have to be picked. President Trump spoke with radio host Brian Kimmed following Marino's decision. Trump claimed that if there's even a perception of a conflict of interest, Marino does not want anything to do with the job. This year, <clears throat> AB 570 was the only substantial workers' compensation-related proposed law on the horizon. 
AB 570, the broad analysis was an attempted rollback of permanent disability apportionment rules. The purpose of the bill was to eliminate elements of what the author believes was gender bias in the workers' comp system. According to the author, women can receive disproportionately low compensation amounts for work-related permanent disability because of the gender-specific conditions of pregnancy and childbirth. The author points to specific examples where the evaluating physician has pointed to pre-existing conditions that have involved pregnancy or childbirth in apportioning the causation of subsequent industrial injuries and argues that this constitutes an inappropriate discrimination since male injured workers can never have their disability apportioned in this manner. This bill would have prohibited apportionment in the case of a physical injury based on pregnancy, childbirth, or other medical conditions related to pregnancy or childbirth. AB 570 was passed by the legislature by the end of the session this year, but it was vetoed by the governor as he has done in the past. His signing message said he is vetoing this bill for the same reasons that he vetoed similar measures in 2016 and 2015. Labor Code Section 4663 provides that the employer shall only be liable for the percent of permanent disability directly caused by the injury. He noted that AB 570 is in direct contradiction to this legislative scheme because it requires employers to be liable for non-work-related injuries and that this measure would extend the scope of workers' compensation system well beyond what it was meant to do. He agreed with the author that there is no place for gender discrimination in the workers' comp system. However, he said it is not discrimination to have a gender-neutral system in which only permanent disability that results directly from work injuries is compensable. The creation of a broad exception to the apportionment statutes for medical conditions that affect only women would create a gender-based classification and would not be likely to withstand constitutional challenge. The California Applicants Attorneys Association responded to the governor's letter with a brutal spoof called Father Knows Best on its website. Thus, this issue will likely be raised again next year. And in medical news, Governor Jerry Brown declared a state of emergency over the deadly hepatitis A outbreak in California. An increase in the incidence of infectious diseases related to geographic risk may give rise to industrial injury claims under several theories of California workers' compensation law on AOE-COE. The emergency proclamation, which was issued by Brown on Friday, follows the state to increase the, its supply of hepatitis A vaccines in order to control the current outbreak. The Los Angeles County Department of Public Health declared a local outbreak of hepatitis A in September. San Diego and Santa Cruz have also declared local outbreaks. According to the California Department of Public Health, there have been a total of 18 deaths so far, all in the San Diego area, which has reported 490 cases of hepatitis A and 342 hospitalizations. The Department of Public Health said the Santa Cruz area has 71 reported cases and 33 hospitalizations. 
Los Angeles has eight reported cases and six hospitalizations, and other regions in California have seven reported cases and five hospitalizations. This brings the total number of cases in the state to 576, with 386 hospitalizations. California is experiencing the largest hepatitis A outbreak in the United States, transmitted from person to person, instead of by contaminated food, since the vaccine became available in 1996. According to the Department of Public Health, the hepatitis A virus is spread when the virus is ingested by mouth from contact with hands, objects, food, or drinks that are contaminated by the feces of an infected person. The Department of Industrial Relations has a webpage dedicated to the topic of protecting workers from hepatitis A. The DIA says employers should ask their local health departments whether hepatitis A vaccinations should be offered to employees who are at an increased risk, and if so, whether the local health department is available to assist. Employers must ensure that workplace restrooms are kept clean and sanitary. Additional cleaning may be needed if persons outside of the workplace who are at greatest risk for hepatitis infection, such as homeless persons or persons using illicit drugs, have used or have had access to workplace restrooms. CalOSHA is encouraging employers and workers at risk of exposure to the hepatitis A virus to review preventative measures posted online. In outbreak locations, workers who have direct contact with persons who are homeless or use illicit drugs have an increased risk of hepatitis A exposure in settings that include healthcare and laboratory, public safety and emergency medical services, sanitation and janitorial, homeless services, and substance use treatment facilities. A person can be exposed to the hepatitis A virus after coming into contact with objects, food, or drinks contaminated by an infected person. Employers should maintain a clean and sanitary workplace and provide proper hand-washing facilities and protective equipment. And in other industry news, dozens of cities are working frantically to land Amazon's second headquarters, raising a weighty question with no easy answer. Is it worth it? Most economists say the answer is a qualified yes. Amazon is promising $5 billion of investment and 50,000 jobs over the next decade and a half to the successful city. For the right city, winning Amazon's second headquarters could help it attain the rarefied status of tech hub with the prospect of highly skilled, well-paid workers by the thousands spending freely upgrading a city's urban core and fueling job growth beyond Amazon itself. It's that hope that has triggered excitement from such cities as New York, Boston, and Chicago to tiny Miami, Ohio. The Southern California region has several willing candidates that are expected to submit bids, including Irvine, Santa Ana, and San Diego. Other known contenders will be communities in Los Angeles County, where regional efforts include locations in Los Angeles and Pomona, where Cal Poly Pomona and the Fairplex have offered up land. The city of Irvine and the Irvine Company are expected to submit a combined bid. A possible location for Amazon could be land the Irvine Company owns around the Irvine Spectrum.
Governor Jerry Brown has been supportive of the effort to lure Amazon, writing a cover letter for communities to include in their proposals. Addressed directly to the Amazon CEO, the letter cites the state's strong university system and talented workforce as reasons the company should give careful consideration to the many California cities interested in becoming the next home for Amazon's newest headquarters. Brown's office also supplied communities with a list of possible state tax credits available to Amazon, something the tax company asked for in its request for proposals. Among the subsidies available under current law are up to $200 million as part of the California Competes tax credit program and up to $100 million in workforce training funds. Brown has also pledged to establish a multi-agency strike team that can help expedite permits and approvals. Some cities are considering packages of their own. In Chula Vista, the city council was expected to debate a $400 million incentive deal. But California faces significant headwind in their effort to lure employers. According to the Chief Executive Magazine 2017 ranking of the 50 best and worst states for business, California anchored the bottom of the list at number 50 for the sixth consecutive year. New York wallowed at number 49, and Illinois listed at number 48. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Fols, an attorney with Floyd's Karen and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news. 